for this very kind reception. I'm very glad to be here in Athens again. My only embarrassment is that when I hear such kind words about me, flattering me too much, I find it difficult to recognize myself in them. I'm tempted to look back like, who is that guy, serious philosopher you were talking about? Now, as you, Thomas, know very well, in psychoanalysis, we call this gap between your, or in this case, my stupid immediate existence and the symbolic identity, which is always the center with which you cannot immediately identify, we call this symbolic castration. So, thanks very much for a castrating experience. That's and have many things to say, let me begin. It is easy, it is fashionable to make fun of Francis Fukuyama's notion developed in the early 90s of the end of history. But are we aware that the majority of us, including most of today's left, we are I don't know what to be the predicate Fukuyamaists. That is to say, most of us do accept liberal democratic capitalism as the finally found formula of the best possible society. Even a large majority of today's left, what it is proposing is just to make it a little bit better, more social care for the underprivileged, more tolerance, and so on and so on, but almost nobody today questions the very fundamentals. Is political democracy the ultimate form? Do we need a state? Will capitalism survive? All the questions which were raised somewhere in the 1970s and then disappeared. This for me is almost the only true question today. Do we accept this naturalization of capitalism? Or does today's global capitalism contain, still contain some strong enough antagonisms which will prevent its indefinite reproduction? The reason I remain some kind of a Marxist is not that I believe that a new working class will emerge led by the Leninist party. No, I'm only more of a pessimist. I see in today's global constellation four antagonisms, four at least problematic regions where I think that the tension, the problem cannot be solved ultimately in the long term within the liberal democratic capitalist frame. Which are these antagonisms? First, of course, it is what I will talk about today, ecology. Now, I am well aware, first, that if anything, the state socialist ways of dealing with ecological problematic were even much more catastrophic. I'm also 
well aware of the infinite adaptability of capitalism. Imagine a new ecological, global ecological catastrophe. It's clear that capitalism will use it just to open a new, incredibly dynamic field of investment. Let's even accept the hypothesis of global warming in the sense that the areas around Equator will become uninhabitable and you will have slowly to move up, up. I can cynically, ironically imagine new real estate agencies offering a nice locations to build, your, to build your villa in southern Antarctic or whatever Arctic. I don't, so I don't have any illusions here. What I nonetheless think is that the nature of the risks involved in ecology fundamentally preclude a market solution. Why? Capitalism is very efficient, but it works in precise social conditions. It implies its implication is that we trust into the market's mechanism, the market's invisible hand, which guarantees that the competition of individual egotisms works for the common good. However, I claim that this mechanism works only when our individual acts are part of what, in old Hegelian language, we can call social substance. You know, like whatever you do, it can trigger a counter-reaction, even a catastrophe, but somehow life goes on. It's counteracted by other forces and so on, so that we are just elements in a larger objective social process. I think we are reaching the limits of this logic. Today, maybe for the first time in human history, the act of a single social or political agent can alter or even interrupt the entire global historical process, an atomic catastrophe or whatever. It can change things so much so that we cannot any longer play this game of trusting what Hegel called, uh, called list the Vernunft, the coming of reason. You do something wrong, but history corrects it and so on. It can simply be that we do something wrong and simply everything goes wrong. I think this poses a limit to long-term capitalist solutions. Because, you know, market works through error and trial. You try something, another person tries something, and then through repetitive attempts, a solution emerges. But we can well imagine ecological catastrophes or the threat of catastrophes where we simply cannot afford this kind of a slow process of trial and error. In other words, the paradox is that we are omnipotent today, omnipotent in the sense that an act of ours can maybe destroy the entire balance of our environment. But we don't know how we are omnipotent. We cannot predict the consequences of our acts. 
again, in such a constellation, I don't think capitalism can do the job. The second feature that I see as a tension in today's capitalism is the obvious inappropriateness of private property for the so-called intellectual property. You know how the main problem of today's new digital industries is how to maintain the form of private property within which only the logic of profit can be maintained. Do the legal complications of biogenetics also not point in the same direction? This is why the key element of the new international trade agreements is the protection of intellectual property. So I think what happens here, if you follow it closely, is that if you let the logic of private property dominate the field, then we, we find ourselves in a situation where potentially some big company will literally own what in old English and the term was now rehabilitated by Hart and Negri in their empire, what they call commons, the shared legacy. And it's very risky to allow the privatization of that. We will be, if you let market free, we will find ourselves in a situation where biogenetic companies will own our genes where, for example, Microsoft, without the intervention of the American state, would literally own a private company, our very means of communication, and so on and so on. The third complication I see in modern capitalism is the challenge of the new technological and scientific developments, especially in, bio, in biogenetics. Let me be very clear here. The main consequence of the scientific breakthroughs in biogenetics is, to put it very simply, I think, the end of nature. That is to say, once we know the rules of the construction of a natural organism, how it reproduces itself through its genome and so on, once we know this, Natural organisms are transformed into objects amenable to manipulation. Nature, human and inhuman, is in this way desubstantialized. It's deprived of its impenetrable density. In our spontaneous understanding, nature is not what is out there independently of us. Nature is the density of our life world, which by definition is unfathomable, impenetrable. This is what I think is disappearing today. Because you see what is the trick. The trick is that once, and that's the big prospect of today's biogenetics, it's not only to manipulate through biogenetic interventions existing living beings, but to even they use the term life number two, like world two, and so on, to create a totally new form of artificial life. But even if this is utopia, the point is that once you do this, then the natural life 
loses its natural character and becomes life number one. You no longer, again, see nature as this breathing, living entity. It becomes a transparent mechanism. How to deal with the ethical consequences of this is, again, something that I think cannot be solved within the framework of capitalism. Then, last but not least, the crucial problem, the new forms of apartheid emerging today. New walls, people living excluded in slums. There were many theories about what does September 11th of 2001 mean. I think that it's crucial to compare September 11th with 12 years earlier, the 9th of November, 1989, when the Berlin Wall fell. Usually people say this was the end of utopias. Finally we accepted reality, capitalist reality, the way it is. But I think the 90s were the real utopia. The utopia, precisely the Fukuyama utopia, that we found the formula liberal democratic capitalism, and okay, we can improve it here and there, but that's it. And I think that the message or the historical meaning of September 11th is precisely the end of this utopia. History is bad here, new walls are emerging here and there. It is only, I mean, from Berlin Wall went down, but now we have walls between Israel and West Bank, around the European Union, on the US-Mexico borders, and so on. The ethical consequences of this are staggering, and we are not even aware of them. There was a small note in newspapers, I don't know how much you noticed it, about a strange trial which goes on now on the small island of Lampedusa in southern Italy. Maybe or now, two weeks ago, even less, on September 20th, seven fishermen from Tunis went on trial for the crime of rescuing 44 African migrants from certain death in the sea. They found them there, half drowned, dying among them, women, pregnant women, small children, and so on. They brought them to safety to the small island of Lampedusa, the nearest piece of land, and they were immediately, the Tunisian fishermen, uh, arrested for aiding and abetting illegal immigrants. And they should get between 1 and 15 years in jail. What is so crazy here? What this incident demonstrates is that Giorgio Agamben's notion of homo sapiens, the excluded from the civil order, the one who can be killed with impunity, is fully operative in today's Europe, which praises itself as the ultimate bastion of human rights and humanitarian help. Are we aware that in the middle of this, Europe of human rights, helping the starting in Africa and so on. What happened is that a group of people found themselves confronted with a clear situation. And I'm not a naive idealist here. 
I know the way you left is to say, let's open our borders, let's the millions come. This is a real problem. I know this kind of thing left. All I'm saying is nonetheless, this should give us to think. The situation was clear. People on their business job in the middle of the sea found a group of other people which were close to death. Among them, again, small children, pregnant women, and so on. All they did is save them. For this, they are put to trial. And the message is clear, as Italian judges hear. <clears throat> Maybe that there are documented cases of opposite examples, where fishermen encountered refugees from the seas close to death, and they simply kick them off, kill them. You don't get to trial for that. I think it is absolutely crucial not to oppose this as a kind of aberration to this new notion of liberal humanitarian health and so on and so on and so on. This is the obverse of today's humanitarianism. When we do humanitarian health, we do it so that the other stays there, so that the distance is maintained. Which is why I think that more and more, instead of the old class struggle, the new form of fundamental social division today is the gap between, to put it very simply, those who are inside and those who are outside, outside of control. And this is a very interesting paradoxical phenomenon. You know that one of the commonplaces is that today we live in a society of total control, even if we do not get political terror as in Stalinism or fascism, we are observed all the time, controlled, and so on and so on. But is it not all the more strange how in most of the countries, even in the developed ones, like the United States, slums, favelas, and so on are growing, literally growing. Are you aware that today over one billion people already live in slums, favelas, and so on? And I'm not using this term in some Christian sentimental metaphorical way. I define slums, favelas as places where the power, state power, withdraws its control. It just, okay, prevents excesses, but basically they are out of the civil order. The story I like to evoke, I love it, is of the German half-dissident, half-state writer from old German Democratic Republic, Christa Wolf, who reports how, in the days of German Democratic Republic, she brought her small daughter to the high TV tower in East Berlin, and from there you can see the West. <laughs> now, the East German map of West of Berlin area was a unique thing which I love. It was the, area, the map detail of the whole Berlin area, but the West Berlin island was quite blank. As if it's nothing there. And she, Christa Wolf, reports how when her small daughter looked from this tower into the west, says, look, mommy, it's not white there. There are people there. And so on. This surprise. Maybe that's what we should do. We have more and 
more in our space this kind of blend elements. I even think that if the principal task of the emancipatory politics of the 19th century was to break the monopoly of bourgeois liberals by way of politicizing ordinary people, working classes. If the task of the 20th century was to politically awaken the immense rural, rural populations of Asia, Africa, Latin America, and so on, maybe the principal task of the 21st century is to politicize, organize, and discipline this excluded, destructure masses of slum dwellers. And this is why, although I do not idealize Hugo Chavez, he's doing many crazy things, I think it will not end well, but honestly, one thing I think is this eternal achievement. For the first time, he really politicized the excluded. Not in this humanitarian way, each lady is going there, sympathizing, how horrible this is our rich society is starving there. He mobilized them, included them into a political process. So, to stop now, this I see as the four spheres of problems today, where I don't think they can be in the long term solved within the global capitalist frameworks. Of course, they are not of the same order. The first three concern, again, what Hart and Negri call commons, the shared substance of our social being. First, we have the commons of culture, what some people call socialized cognitive capital, language, communication, education, and so on. Then we have the commons of external nature, our natural environment, threatened by pollution, exploitation. And then the commons of internal nature, the biogenetic inheritance of humanity. Now, in the remainder of my talk, I want to focus on ecology. Why? Not because it's the most important one, not necessarily, but because I think that it's maybe the crucial example of ideological struggle today. Why? My thesis will be very radical. On the one hand, the problem is absolutely a real one. My God, we are talking about survival of humanity. On the other hand, ideology breaks in today's ecology. Maybe, let me clarify here things. What is ideology? Ideology are not crazy, abstract ideas which obfuscate real problems. The power of ideology is that it deals with very real problems, but gives them a, what I call it, mystifying twist or spin, in the sense we talk today about spin doctors and so on. So that's the seduction of ideology, you know? When you attack an ideologist, he will say, but don't you see that these are problems? Let me give you, before I go on to ecology, let me give you another example. Tolerance. I and more important to reject the very notion of tolerance. Why? Of course, on the one hand, it designates a real problem. Maybe when I attack tolerance, people immediately 
ataque-me, are you crazy? But don't you see intolerance, racism, sexism, and so on? Don't you see that this is a problem? Yes, but what I claim, let's go to racism. What I claim is that it's not self-evident to reformulate, to perceive the problem of racism as a problem of tolerance. And here is the ideology. Listen, if you don't believe me, you can repeat my experiment. I went on the internet and downloaded all the main speeches by Martin Luther King, the great figure of the 20th century fight against racism. And I put the notes into search tolerance, intolerance. The word practically doesn't exist in his vocabulary. Why? For him, uh, American white racism against the blacks was not the problem of tolerance. It was the problem of political equality, economic justice, and so on. For him, it would have been humiliating and ridiculous to say, we blacks want more tolerance from the whites. And if you are a feminist, and I hope you are, a woman with a minimum of feminist pride, you would also find it ridiculous, humiliating, to say the goal of feminism is that more tolerance from men. It's a bad joke. So again, the true question is, the true question is, of course, what we perceive as intolerance, racist, violence, and so on, is a problem. Why is this problem perceived as the problem of tolerance and not of legal equality, economic justice, and so on? Here we see ideology at work. Real problem mystified. The answer, I think, is that we, more and more, we are approaching so-called post-political era where, let's call them naively, the real problem, political power, economic regulations, and so on, are more and more depoliticized so that whenever battles are fought, they are always translated into cultural battles, conflicts. For example, in the United States, uh, the only way that any reference to exploitation and class struggle survives is that you talk about the exploitation of Mexican immigrant workers, of the blacks, and so on, and then ideology ends. No? Instead of talking about economic exploitation, you somehow, even if you don't say it, act as if the root of economic exploitation is our intolerance towards the others. All of a sudden, the problem becomes tolerance. I think there is an ideological justification at work here. And the same goes even more for ecology. In what sense? Today's ecology is predominantly the ecology of fear. And as such, it fits perfectly today's politics, which is a politics of fear, as you also learned, I think, in your last elections and so on. Today we have this anonymous, expert, technocratic post-political administration. If you want to move a step over it, to introduce what once was called passion into politics, the only way which unfortunately even the left follows is to evoke some kind of a fear. Fear of immigrants, fear of terror, fear of natural catastrophes, whatever you want. It's fear. You can gather and mobilize people through fear. This ecology of fear, I think, has all the chances 
of developing into our predominant ideology. A new, I'm ironically here using Marxist term for religion, a new opium for and of the masses. Namely, it takes over the old religion's fundamental function, that of putting on, of installing an unquestionable authority which can impose limits. The lesson, this ideology, sorry, this ecology of fear is constantly hammering is our feeling. We are not abstract Cartesian subjects extracted from reality. We are finite beings embedded in a biosphere which vastly transgresses our horizon. In our exploitation of natural resources, we are borrowing from the future, so why should treat our Earth with respect as something sacred, something that should not be unveiled totally, a power we should trust, not dominate? This is why, although ecologists are all the time demanding that we change radically our way of life, underlying this demand is its opposite a deep distrust of change, of development of progress. Every radical change can generate unintended catastrophic consequences. It is, I think, this distrust which makes ecology the ideal candidate for hegemonic ideology, since it echoes the anti-totalitarian distrust of large collective of large collective acts. The underlying message of this predominant ecological ideology is a deeply conservative one. Any change can only be the change for the worse. So what is wrong here? What is wrong, I think, is the very starting presupposition. To put it simply, the presupposition that there is something like nature, which we humans, with our hubris, with our will to dominate, disturb, disturb its, its patterns of balance and which somehow should be restored, the natural balance. Here we should take seriously the lesson of Darwinism, which is that it's a very crazy lesson. I don't think we are ready to take it, which is why I think Darwinism still has something to tell us. The true core of Darwinism, as all progressive Darwinists, like Stephen Jay Gould will, will tell you, is not that right-wing rubbish, life is struggle, the stronger wheels. No, the lesson is that nature itself is not natural, it's denaturalized. Nature tinkers, improvises with great losses and catastrophes accompanying every limited success. The logic, nature is not a harmonious pattern of you know, seasons, change, balance, uh, reproduction. Nature is one big chaos catastrophe which is from time to time contained in a fragile balance but then it explodes again. Are we aware of how true this is for us? What is our main source of energy today? Oil. But we know that oil is organic remainder. Sometimes we can even recognize their traces of plants, animals, and so on. Can we even imagine what kind of unbelievable ecological catastrophe have to have happened so that we have our oil reserves? 
this is natural. And so I think that it, my first conclusion, ideology at its purest is precisely this idea that we humans are maybe too active, intervening, disturbing some pre-existing balance. As psychoanalysts of Lacanian orientation, me and my good friend Thomas, we know Jacques Lacan's motto, the big other doesn't exist. I think we should extend this to nature. The first premise of a truly radical ecology should be nature doesn't exist. Namely, nature is this maternal deity, if you want, Gaia substance which we humans disturbed and then the balance of which should be restored. If you read really intelligent biologists and geologists of the Earth today, they will tell you many funny and at the same time terrifying stories. Like the main conclusion, which I find breathtakingly fascinating, is this. The natural equilibrium of our Earth is already to such an extent accommodated to human pollution that if, let us imagine, human pollution were radically to stop or to diminish, it would have caused a breathtaking imbalance catastrophe of natural reproduction itself. Nature, as it were, already includes our pollution into its, uh, into its uh, reproduction. So again, what we need is ecology without nature, ecology which accepts this open, imbalanced, denaturalized, if you want, character of nature itself. Nature improvises, thinkers, and so on. Nature are not stable patterns. Precisely this notion of nature as stable patterns of life, imposing this onto nature, is the ultimate human theories, is the ultimate human violence. Next point that I want to make. With regard to the prospects of an ecological catastrophe, I think, and this is my key message, it is, I think, all too short to attribute our disbelief in the catastrophe to the impregnation of our minds by scientific ideology. You know, this standard thesis of the predominant ecology, which says something like this, the ultimate cause of our ecological problems is modern technology, Cartesian subjectivity. We think we are abstract beings, somehow outside nature, who can manipulate nature, dominate nature. What we should rediscover is that nature is not out there an object of our manipulation. Nature is our very background. We are wired, wired, in that sense, to nature, embedded in nature. You should go out, feel, breathe nature. You should accept that your abstract scientific reification, objectivization of nature to so-called natural mechanisms is just an alternating effect of being embedded in the life world. I think that Far from offering a solution, this kind of reference to our immediate living experience is the cause of the problems. 
violence. I claim that it is precisely because of this continuing feeling of being embedded in a natural environment that we cannot take and do not take the ecological threat seriously enough. Look, let's be frank. First, apart from catastrophic effects like your fires that we see from time to time, are we aware that the very notion of ecological crisis is a scientific one, like ozone hole? I'm sorry to tell you, but look up as much as you want, you will see no hole out there. We have to rely on science, but my main point is the following part. Uh, why do we do so little, although we know very well how dangerous the ecological situation is, why do we not act? I think we are dealing with what in psychoanalysis we call fetishist phenomenon. The logic is the famous Chesekian comment. I know very well, but nonetheless, I do not believe. We know very well, science is telling us, of all the threats. But what then happens? After listening to a talk about ecology, you go out, you see, my God, nice wind, sun is going down, even some stupid birds singing there, maybe, whatever. So can this really change? Look what I mean. We are precisely because we are embedded in nature. We cannot really accept that this can fall apart. And precisely because of this, we cannot take the ecological threat seriously. So again, my little bit crazy maybe conclusion is that, uh, uh, is that the solution is not, let's not alienate ourselves in technology and science, let's rediscover the way we are part of the living organism of nature. No, we should cut off even that link precisely. We should in some way alienate ourselves even more, denaturalize ourselves. Only in that way can we really see the ecological threat. Otherwise, we are ultimately acting the way some Ukrainian Farmers close to Chernobyl are acting. I saw recently a wonderful documentary on them. Do you know that around 100 farmers still live in that secluded, evacuated area? And they were interviewed and they say, what's the problem? Water gates. Look, we live here, life is fine, all the corn is left, we can now grow our potatoes and so on. You know, they simply deny the problem. That's where the natural attitude no, we have to cut off our link with nature, which is always, again, an ideological notion. That's what we should always remember, that as old Marxists like George Lukács insisted, and I think they are right, nature is a social category, not in this subjective idealist sense that we construct nature, but in the sense that what counts as natural is always a product of a certain social symbolic constellation. Each epoch has its own nature. You know that, for example, in old medieval times, nature was considered a natural pyramid of creation. With uh, the explosion of capitalism and Darwinism, nature was considered the space of competitive struggle. In our era, nature is more some kind of autopoetic uh, system and so on and so on. 
it's, you can closely analyze the notion of nature again. You will see how it's precisely because it is the open space of radical otherness to us humans. It is always the open space for ideological investment. And the most difficult thing today is to, that's the lesson of psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis is not hermeneutics. It's not all we discover deep meanings. Psychoanalysis is the best instrument to avoid the temptation of meaning. That's very difficult, especially when you are dealing with catastrophes. I fully understand the crazy phenomenon, I was told about it in Jerusalem, that uh, there is now a strong Orthodox Jewish sect led by a rabbi who claims that the Jews deserve the Holocaust, that it was payment for the sinful ways of European Jews. And I understand it, even if it sounds crazy, if you put blame on yourself, it's better than to accept that such an absolutely terrifying act as Holocaust can just happen without any deep meaning. It's the same with, uh, it's the same with AIDS. Do you remember how immediately meaning was projected onto it? Ah, Holocaust, the result of our sinful ways of life, and so on. So many of my materialist Marxist friends are asking me, why are you writing books on Christianity? I tell them, no, don't be afraid. I am a materialist. But I think that the great lesson of Christianity, let me put a little bit in the five minutes that I have of theology to be a priest, you know, that, uh, is precisely this resistance to meaningless, to me, which is why I think the greatest founding text of Western civilization, if this sense has any meaning, is the book of Job, you know, in the Old Testament. Remember exactly what happens there. It's not that the guy obeys God's truth in all possible ways, the guy says, yeah, yeah, no. First, it's critical how we falsify the figure of God. He protests all the time. He's a nasty old man who says, no, but how does he protest? You remember what happens. Horrible things happen to Job, uh, and ironically, I miss them in that way, you know. His wife, his goats, his cows, everything dies, no. And then, uh, what happens then? Then the three idiots come, or four, if you count all of them, which are, I think, proto-ideologists. You know, his theologian friends, who was their point? It's not you are giving. Their message is your catastrophe must have a meaning. But the first gives you a simple version. God is just, so if you suffer, even if you don't know, you must have done something. The second one says God is testing you, whatever. The message is it must have some meaning. And I think the greatness of Job is not to protest God so much, but to insist, no, okay, these horrible things happen to me, but I don't accept that they have any meaning. And the beauty of it is that when uh, God appears at the end, he says every word that Job said, protest, he was right. All that those theological advocates of me said was wrong. Which is why I think Job should be effectively read as a precursor of Jesus Christ. What dies on the cross? I think that exactly Hegel had the right answer. When he says, on the cross, it is not the God of beyond. Sorry, it is not the terrestrial representative of 
God who dies. It's the very God of beyond. The way I read it is the following. Again, you know, for me, the most disgusting part of traditional uh, religious ideology. This idea, even if you suffer, don't worry too much, everything has a deeper meaning. God knows what it means. You know this disgusting metaphor of our experience of suffering as that of a stand in a picture. Like, let's take a beautiful, I don't see it here, a beautiful picture. Of course, if you look very closely, you see a stand. If you withdraw to a proper distance, you see that what appears as a stain is part of a larger harmony. But uh, isn't it that with our 20th century experiences, not only of life, won't be a little bit simple to say, oh, Holocaust or Stalinist Gulag, they appear only to our limited view as a stain. Why do, from a proper distance they contribute to divine harmony or whatever? I think that this God, the big other who guarantees meaning, is dead. And the way I see the figure of Jesus Christ in the materialist is precisely this divine abdication. I cannot do it for you. I fall into my own creation. I can only suffer with you. Because what you get then, after the Christ's death, is not back to God. God is over. What you hear, I respectively disagree with your orthodox theology, which claims, you know, this big question of provenience, that, uh, that uh, the Holy Spirit comes only from, uh, only from Father, not as Western Christianity claims from Father and Son. No, again, it comes only from the Son, in the sense that when true Son, the Father dies, all that remains is the Holy Spirit, which is, which means us. To cut a long story short, the Communist Party. The Communist Party is our organization. The message is not we trust God. No, God is desperate and trusts us. Just to trust us. We are the only God. So, back to my point and to conclude. Uh, I would like to conclude to articulate the space of theology, sorry, of ecology, actually. <laughs> with a reference to a well-known American philosopher who developed some interesting thoughts about the relationship between known and unknown. Okay, you got the joke, Donald Trump. You remember how a couple of years ago, at the beginning of the war, Rumsfeld made a very strange interview where he said we should distinguish, to justify the fear of weapons of mass destruction, we should distinguish between known, knowns, the things we know that we know. Like, I know that you are Thomas Lipovets and I know that I know it. Then he said there are, uh, there are uh, known unknowns, like things that I don't know, but I know that I don't know them. Like, I don't know. I know that there is a certain number of cars on the street outside this house, but I know that I don't know it. But I know that I don't know it. Then he says, Rumsfeld, there are unknown unknowns, in the sense that things that we don't know, but we even do not know that we do not know. <laughs> and that was his point. What if Satan has some horrible ultra weapons that we even don't know that we don't know them? No? But as the Freudian, I think we should criticize our distinct American colleague, philosopher here. He forgot the fourth number, the fourth element. Did you notice 
the asymmetry in his argument. Known knows, think we know that we know. Uh, known unknowns, things we know that we don't know. Like, I don't know how old are you or you, but maybe it's better than I don't know. <laughs> but I know that I don't know it, and unknown unknowns, unknown, things totally out. There is a fourth term missing, which is not the known unknowns, but the unknown knowns. Things we do not know that we know. This is what we call ideology. Prejudices, unconscious ideas which control us, which determine our acts, but we even do not know that we know them. Unconscious knowledge which determines our acts and we are not even aware of it. This is why, incidentally, I think the Americans are in such a deep crap in Iraq. Because precisely they are not aware of the whole set of ideological prejudices and so on which control, which control their acts there. So I think to conclude and to come back, come back to ecology, I think that it is precisely the two dimensions which are crucial for how we mishandle ecology. On the one hand, ecology is so threatening precisely because we are dealing with unknown unknowns. The field is open, we even don't know what we don't know. We can do something, a totally unexpected result pops up and so on. On the other hand, we are deeply determined by the unknown knowns. That is to say, we are not even aware to what extent the very, uh, the very way we perceive ecological problematics is determined by these spontaneous ideological notions of what we understand as nature and so on and so on, notions of which we are not even aware. So, my result is then that uh, there is no easy way out. I'm not proposing a simple solution to ecological crisis. And frankly, I don't even think that this is a duty of me as a philosopher. To put it very naively, we live in difficult times, but what can a philosopher like me tell? I cannot give you answers. I don't know what we should do. But I can only make you see not what is the answer, but how maybe the way we approach the problem, the way we ask the question is part of the problem. I can correct questions as Gilles Deleuze, you know, French guy, said very nicely, there are not only wrong answers, there are also wrong questions. Here we can say a lot today. Thank you very much for your attention.